LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Listen without limits. Unchain your brain. Change your thinking. Change your life. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Frank Furedi, who joins us to discuss the coronavirus crisis and the real pandemic, fear. COVID-19 is a disaster without precedent. Not primarily in terms of the disease itself, but in how we have responded to it. The climate of fear is such that populations worldwide have willingly abandoned their way of life, given up rights and fundamental freedoms, and accepted government-imposed lockdowns, all in the name of protection from the threat of infection. While governments were delighted that a fearful public was so ready to exchange its freedom for the promise of safety, they now have a new problem. Citizens have become too scared to leave their homes when the lockdowns end. Whatever the actual physical threat from COVID-19, most people are now discovering that the devastating economic, social and psychological impact of lockdowns will have a much greater impact on their lives. Once the exercise of freedom is perceived as unsafe, and a threat to human health, society is in trouble. Depriving people of freedom does not make anyone feel genuinely safe, and after months of living in lockdown, millions of people have become terrified of everyone and everything. We can never be 100% safe, but by stepping outside of our homes we can begin to live as free citizens again. We can begin to take back control, get on with our lives, and learn to contain the threat posed by COVID-19. No power on earth can do more to strengthen our ability to deal with fear than freedom. Hello and welcome Frank and thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Nice to be here and nice to talk to you. Splendid. Now today Frank we're going to be talking about obviously uh, what's going on in the world at the moment. We're recording this in the midst of the so-called coronavirus crisis of 2020. We'll be talking about uh, your recent book, uh, which is entitled How Fear Works, Culture of Fear in the 21st Century. Before we dive into that, for listeners who don't know, just let people know a little bit about your background and your work in general. Well, I'm a sociologist uh, by trade, a professor of sociology, and I've been doing work on the question of fear and uncertainty for about 25 years. And what I'm really concerned about is the way in which societies, Western societies in particular, are finding it very difficult to deal with the unknown, to deal with uh, problems and and, and tend to uh, uh, avoid uh, facing up to the challenge of uh, building some kind of a a more confident society that can deal with the problems of the future. And instead, we tend to continually retreat. And one of my main concerns in my works is that we s- seem to be stuck uh, right in the middle between the past and the present. And it's very presentist, uh, sort of very kind of down, 
downhearted kind of pessimistic way. You've written a series of articles over the last few weeks about the current crisis. Uh, the latest was entitled A Disaster Without Precedent. Um, so perhaps you could get us started by talking a little bit about a couple of the over- overarching ideas you just mentioned, but how what's currently going on in the world has really brought this into focus. It's right front and centre now in everyone's mind, because for many people, uh, many observers, fear is actually the real pandemic here. Well, I think the interesting thing is, is that uh, if you look back upon history uh, and you look at all the big catastrophes that humanity has faced, we can learn quite a lot about it. We can learn about how societies have dealt with it successfully and in some cases less successfully. And uh, one of the things that I was really interested in is is, our, is, is a very simple uh, um, lesson that we learn from disaster, which is that the... Uh, problem posed by the threat of a disaster is ultimately uh, influenced by the way we reacted. So the way we reacted actually uh, ultimately shapes how much that disaster means to us, how much of an impact it has on our lives, and whether or not it kind of uh, paralyzes us or, or gives us some ideas about how to, how to move uh, sort of further. Uh, so what I'm very interested in is and I was very interested in is that in many respects what's what's unique about the present pandemic is not that it's a particularly major one. We had many pandemics in the past that were far more destructive and far more corrosive as far as people's lives was concerned. For example, the uh, 1918 influenza pandemic or the 1968 Hong Kong virus, these, these, these had all and more destructive impacts. But what's interesting about our own pandemic at the moment is the way we reacted to it, because we've done things that we never, we've never done before. We've reacted globally. We've closed down children's schools, which has never happened before, even during the Second World War. The schools were open. We've never stopped talking about the pandemic. We've closed down the economy. And I think that what has happened is we've given a completely unrestrained uh, sort of territory for fear to flourish. And uh, in that sense, that's why I use the word this uh, unprecedented disaster, not because of the gravity of the threat posed by the disaster, which is obviously is quite serious, but the way we reacted to it, which is uh, quite unprecedented and uh, is likely to have a long-term uh, impact on the way we live our life. It's going to change the way we live our life because it kind of uh, uh, forced us to uh, uh, experience life in a very different way than ever before. To what extent do you think that the, if not the reaction, but the way the reaction is being received and perceived, you know, is a function of the hyper-connected sort of global systems that we have now? Many people commented in the wake of 9-11, how, especially people who'd been already been living for quite a while at that stage, they said they'd never seen any sort of other big global crisis situation just catch hold of people's fear and imagination so fast and that, at the time people were saying well you know we have the internet now but that you know that was nearly 20 years ago so do you think that that's an important dimension of all this so that every little ripple of reaction from uh, an individual or an organization especially an important individual is relayed around the world you know in nanoseconds uh, often with little context and of course we live in a 
uh, in this information uh, matrix where anybody can input into it and say anything. And so anything you or I might like to say, this conversation, for example, has got a potential audience of billions. It's probably not going to reach those billions, but so anything we say could can filter into that sort of narrative. Everything's just working at hyperspeed these days. And I think that it can be helpful, but it can also be a tremendous hindrance. Well, I think you're, you're right to suggest that uh, this global interconnectivity plays a role. Uh, I'm not sure whether it plays a role that's uh, decisive. Um, and uh, very often uh, people attribute far more power to the uh, global media than it might have. Because you have to remember that after 9-11, although there was a lot of talk about fear, actually most people weren't as uh, caught up in it as one would suspect. And uh, I was involved in doing research at that time with a group of uh, European academics, and we were quite surprised to find that, in fact, when you talk to um, people in Europe, this was an all-European study, most people were far more fearful about their own economic future, their jobs, their pensions, the quality of life that they would have when they got older. They, you know, they, the, the whole idea of global terrorism was pretty low down their hierarchy of fears. They were much more worried about just ordinary banal crime, or they were more worried about immigration than they were about global terrorism. And, and that was, uh, you know, sort of not what you would uh, imagine if you read the newspapers, because in the newspapers and in the movies and on the media, you know, global terrorism, hyper terrorism was you're very widely featured. Now, today, it's, it's a different reaction. I think today, there is a global uh, sort of fear. Fear has really united us in a way that has never occurred in the past. And I think there are a number of reasons for that. Um, and that's to do with the fact that, uh, in a sense, the reason why we react the way we do is not simply because of the way it's presented on the media and how it kind of incites us to to be scared. But because now, we, for decades and decades, we've been uh, almost socializing society into regarding safety as the fundamental value of the Western world. It's almost has a quasi-religious quality to it. And the thing about the, this kind of religious quality of safety is that the more you're concerned about safety, the less safe you feel. I mean, by definition, uh, a psychological concern with safety uh, uh, always makes you feel insecure because you, know, you can never feel too safe. It's not, you know, every new experience, every new problem makes you rethink, uh, the question of your existential or your personal secu uh, security. And it seems to me that, uh, one of the things that has occurred, particularly amongst the younger generations, is we educated them to adopt a kind of learned helplessness, uh, to kind of regard uh, uncertainty and, 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 and risk as entirely negative rather than as something that you can manage or you can deal with or you can confront. And I think as a result of that, what has happened is that when, when the thing broke out, when, when the pandemic broke out, uh, in many parts of the world, uh, a lot of people were asking, you know, for solutions, for help. Tell us what to do. You know, the principal reaction was, you know, whatever you want us to do, we'll do as long as we're, we feel safe. And, Everything in the in, in the in the media terrain and the political terrain was pushing people in that direction, and that's what ex that's what explains why, at the moment, governments are more worried about what's going to happen after the pandemic than in the middle of the pandemic. I've talked to people in or policymakers, and they worried about the fact that 
a lot of people will be too scared to go back to work or to get on a train or to commute to London. Uh, so I think that we now have a very different kind of reaction than was the case in, in previous uh, high-profile incidents. Well, yeah, and, and it, it seems to be, uh, for those of us trying to, to take a slightly cooler look at this, it seems to be very out of proportion. Uh, you mentioned the, the study, uh, the European study in the wake of 9-11 and how most citizens were more concerned with everyday issues. But uh, there does seem to be an issue, maybe it isn't all the media, but how threats are presented and how they're talked about, if at all. For example, people often say, uh, when they're talking about something like international terrorism, where you're much more likely to be killed crossing the road, or even, uh, you know, in the wake of 9-11 getting onto a, an airplane, you're still much more likely to be killed crossing the road than you are taking a flight. But that didn't seem to necessarily be mirrored in, in people's behaviour. So we're told also that more people in the US choke on peanuts and die, or than die as a result of global terrorism. But the, the idea of global terrorism and the idea of the risk of choking on your food they seem just at worlds apart. And so today, still, look at the list of things that are much more risky than catching this virus or, you know, or even never mind dying from it. But yet the, the specter of that fear is living with everyone and it is going to have these long lasting effects. And that's really what I'm most concerned about is not the, 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 the virus itself. That's why I said at the top, you know, fear is kind of the real pandemic. And I can understand why policymakers are so concerned. But I mean, how, how much blame do you lay in general with with governments, with official response to this? Well, I think that uh, policymakers uh, do play a, an important role because they send signals to the population. And I thought the British government was doing a really good job in the beginning until uh, the media literally forced the government to change course because uh, I don't know if you remember uh, after a couple of weeks, they were saying, look, uh, everywhere in Europe, they're doing different things that, than Britain is doing. You know, why is, why is Britain being so laid back compared to the Italians or the French or the Germans? And they pu- they're putting a lot of, a lot of pressure on the government to fall in line with the international consensus. And I think that, uh, because of that, the, the government almost, um, went out of its way then to kind of scare people, uh, to get them to stay at home and to have this kind of one-dimensional message that basically said, your job is is to be at home rather than to do something that allows you to take control over the situation. But it's interesting because other governments behave differently. So, for example, if you take it in the United States, the, the governor of South Dakota basically said, you know, we'll take some sensible precautions, we'll look after the old and the vulnerable, but, you know, life will go on. We're not going to shut down the economy. And uh, the governor was really accused by the Washington Post, by the New York Times and all the other media playing with people's lives and, you know, hundreds of people are going to die in South Dakota and it's going to be horrible. And yet, you know, South Dakota has done reasonably well and people, you know, went about, you know, their business uh, in, in a way that's quite admirable because they got the right signals. And even Sweden, I mean, I think, you know, you almost had this impression in Britain that a lot of people in Britain wanted Sweden to fail because Sweden didn't, you know, lock down the economy. They wanted Swed- the Swedes to, to really pay a high price for their, um, maverick, uh, reaction. And, uh, I think it was, you know, I know I've got Swedish friends and they make the point, uh, that they have a, 
they trust the government, they trust the message, they they really are delighted by the fact that they can go to bars, you know, sort of they can uh, uh, they can just carry on with life, you know, albeit you know with some modifications, and and there you had a different kind of reaction, you know, which is you know it's I'm not a big fan of the Swedish government, but they've done really well in in kind of immunizing people from the worst aspects of fearing and panicking. So I think policymakers can make a very big difference, but I think overall the the real problem is culture. I think. Uh, Western culture, with its obsession of safety and safetyism, uh, where we have to really worry about every dimensions of our lives, uh, has has created a, a, a world where we're very uh, insecure and, and and very we're all too ready to think according to the worst case scenario. And I think that that kind of worst case thinking has become so institutionalized that it. It does. It does become, you know, a very, very big political problem almost everywhere. Yes. Well, this is a culture, as you point out um, in your work, that's evolved over a long period of time. It emphasizes vulnerability and helplessness, um, as you say, and it's also evolved uh, to take even a wider look at this as we become estranged from certain values, uh, which is something that you talk about. And this that sounds like quite archaic talk to some people. I've had conversations with people. They're what are you talking about values. And it all sounds very quaint and old-fashioned, but I think it's important because you do, you do talk about risk and you talk about morality and you talk about courage in, in how fear works. And this is important to grasp when you're trying to understand where we are now in general, but uh, in particular how uh, this crisis is playing out. Yeah, I think it is because one of the uh, nice things about the uh, legacy of, of, of humanity, of humanism, is that at, you know, at various points we learn the importance of experimenting, of taking chances, of risk taking, and, and not deferring to fate. I mean, that was you know quite an incredible uh, insight that we developed, you know, from the ancient Greeks to the Renaissance through the Enlightenment. That that uh, we we need not be the objects of history, but to some extent we can take control of our lives. And it seems to me that what has happened is that first of all. In the world we live in, risk is now uh, seen as being entirely a negative phenomenon. I remember as a child when my dad used to say, "Okay, Frank, this is a good risk and this is a bad risk," and he used to use a you know language of good and neutral and bad risk. Now, risks are by definition bad. There's something to be avoided, and risky behavior is equated to irresponsible behavior. So, you know that that's created a very big problem. And alongside of that. Uh, important uh, virtues uh, that have been essential for uh, dealing with adversity, uh, such as solidarity and courage, are no longer are, as, are seen as being old school, archaic, out of date ideas. And insofar as we talk about courage, we've kind of defined it downwards. So we, we use the expression the courage to survive. So just by surviving, you're courageous, rather than uh, having having the attribute that by 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 that courage doesn't just mean you're surviving; it means that you, you you kind of take on board the challenge, the threats that face society, and you try to to minimize its destructive effect, even through taking risks in the course of that. And uh, because we no longer see these things as really quite important, all that children learn is just one value, which is that of safety. You know, that is good, you know, you know, we must be safe, 
We need security. We need to insulate ourselves from from criticism, from pressure. Uh, we medicalize people at a very, very early age. And therefore, it means that as they're growing up and as they become uh, adults, they, they, to some extent, become so obsessed with their weaknesses, their, their passive side, that they lose side of the fact that we also have a, an active side to our persona, that we have to cultivate our active side and our potential for independence and for, for risk-taking and for dealing with challenges. And I think that that aspect um, uh, of, of our life is, is a problem because we have become, to some extent, morally literate in, in, in terms of dealing with adversity, challenge, and uncertainty. Well, thinking about childhood... I mean, when I was a child in the 70s, I'm going to trot out some well-worn cliches here, but, you know, I played in the dirt with my hands and I rode my bike with no stabilizers on it and I was allowed to stay out on my own until sunset as long as my mum knew where I was. You know, she trusted me to not get into trouble. She trusted me to not hang around with the wrong sort of people and she trusted me to seek, wait for this, to seek the help of an adult if there was some kind of trouble that came up, you know, don't be terrified of every stranger, but, you know, just be careful. Whereas now, of course, that everything has completely changed. And as you say, risk has become uniquely bad. And this filters into your idea about the socializing of young people in general. And of course, many young people who are children and teenagers now, their parents themselves uh, grew up in a world quite different from the one that you and I grew up in. So this is several gen- generations old now to the point where allowing your child to perhaps play in the dirt or allowing your child to be in the, the garden of their own house unsupervised would be seen almost as irresponsible or some borderline child abuse. Yeah, I mean, this is very much the case. It takes around three to four generations for uh, values to become institutionalized and for people to internalize them. So if you begin to go look back to the 50s and the 60s, you can see how some of these uh, precautionary ideals gained traction in society. But it wasn't until the late 70s that uh, that generation of parents began to uh, sort of take these seriously. And since the late 70s, every generation has become more and more enveloped in this idea of mistrusting strangers, of uh, imagining that children are, are so fragile that they cannot be allowed to have you know, real independence, that they cannot take risks. Um, and, and if you look at uh, generational reactions, you'll find that the even today the older parents are far more relaxed about bringing up their kids and, and far more uh, open-minded about what they allow them to do than the youngest generation of parents who've been totally uh, socialized into a very obsessive, risk-averse culture. And I think that, I mean, I... I've seen that in university where over, over the last 40 years, successive waves of undergraduates uh, have changed, fundamentally changed from, you know, essentially risk takers because when you're an undergraduate student, by, you know, by definition, most kids are risk takers. They want to take chances. They want to experiment to now where they've become very much uh, risk averse uh, individuals who, who actually demand that you tell them what to do, that demand that they hold their hands and, and continually ask for affirmation in a, in a way that um, is very sad because you would imagine that at that age, 
between the age of 18 and 24, your idealism and your uh, ambition and your, and your uh, aspiration to make your way in the world would, 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 would lead you in, in a much more uh, adventurist, uh, uh, sort of risk-taking direction. Well, if you look at the, the relationship between the general public now in, in many countries experiencing this current crisis and their own government, it's very much like a child-parent sort of thing. You've written about how, you know, the government can't be expected to do everything, yet the media have browbeaten the government, certainly in the UK, uh, into a, into a different response to this crisis and then immediately begun attacking them because their, their response isn't perfect to everything. They're not getting everything right as they see it, even though what you're supposed to get right is constantly shifting. You know, this is a fluid situation. It's very difficult to judge. I wouldn't want to be part of a government response to this at the minute unless I had some kind of real control where I could start to set the tone. You know, I wouldn't want to be someone going out there every day doing a press conference, you know, with with no control over what decisions were being taken. I wouldn't want to face the media in that context. No, I think you're right. And I think that, I mean, I'm always surprised that uh, governments or officials or uh, communicators don't uh, respond in a more robust way to the media because basically uh, the the media you know sort of is, is demanding them to or trying to trying to in a sense find problems with their behavior in a way that is completely inappropriate I'm not against holding governments to account which I think is always an important job in a, in a democracy but what I am against is this kind of niggling uh, you know, why is it that, you know, uh, uh, these beds weren't available here? And, and why don't we have more testing in, in this particular home? As if somehow uh, a, a government minister or a prime minister can miraculously uh, sort of create uh, new testing centers or provide a particular uh, sort of care home with masks and other kind of clothes. And totally overlooking the fact that we're living in a very, very dynamic complex situation where where the problems mutate from one day to the next and where you know even with the best will in the world the best government uh, is continually running behind to keep up with the with the changing form of the threat so in that sense the media is very very unhelpful because in an ideal world what the media would be doing is actually uh, encouraging people to uh, uh, develop their sense of fortitude to uh, Take responsibility to, uh, for their lives a little bit more. Encourage people to, uh, to kind of go out and, and 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 find ways and means of supporting one another in the in the kind of communities. And instead of doing that, the media just simply uh, kind of creates this kind of world that fuels mistrust and suspicion. And con- and and it's developed this style of blaming that is unrestrained, where, where a kind of blame culture and finger pointing becomes the uh, becomes almost like the alternative to the critical engagement and critical thinking they actually imagine that the more you can blame the more effective you are but it's not realizing that if you do that you undermine trust in in everything in our in our communities you know you've written about name calling in this context of the current crisis uh, in terms of like you know tr- the debate or lack of proper debate about what's going on, what the response should be. You know, this term COVID-8 has been going around and how that's just one of the many ways that people are trying to shut down those that they don't agree with. And for all the rhetoric we have at the minute about 
uh, community solidarity, solidarity. You know, we're all in this together. And that's, you know, people encouraged, you know, to be brave. Uh, what I see and feel is I'm sure most people do who are observing the situation is just a lot of frightened people who are driven apart from friends and family and, and neighbors and driven, uh, put, you know, pitched against each other. You know, you're not doing enough. You're doing the wrong thing. It, it exactly the opposite of what you might have experienced, you know, maybe a, a several generations ago in a, an event of a national crisis. You know, genuine solidarity. So, and that what does worry me going forward as well is for all the economic and other effects that we'll be dealing with, what the societal effects are going to be. Are we still, are there going to be people a year from now jumping away from people in the street? Are there going to be people running out of restaurants if somebody coughs? Are there going to be people still wearing masks two, three years from now criticizing other people who don't? So that's something I keep a close eye on and it does concern me yeah it, it concerns me as well because usually uh in a crisis situation you have uh, wonderful examples of solidarity of people pulling together and to be uh, to be sure we, we have a bit of that you know uh, not everybody in the community has become you know just a passive audience uh watching the unfolding of the pandemic there are a lot of people that want to do good things that want to provide help to other people that want to volunteer. Uh, but I think that what has happened is that the, the majority of the population has been cast into this very passive role where, uh, you know, the more passive you are, the more you're shielded from reality, the more you, uh, in a sense, are uh, enclosed in your home, uh, the more frightened you become and, 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 and you kind of lose your ability to make uh, judgment calls, to uh, to kind of make calculations about what's sensible and what isn't really sensible. And I think that what we've lost uh, is an opportunity for communities to develop their capacity for judgment, for using their common sense, for making local decisions that are appropriate for their circumstances that may not be the same decisions that another community makes. For example... Uh, it seems to me absurd that the same rules apply uh, in London uh, as 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 in a kind of small farming community in Yorkshire or 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 elsewhere because the the nature, the threat, the problems are very very different and and the one size fit all kind of approach makes no sense. I think it would make much more sense if people were allowed to discuss and debate uh, as to what is the best way of managing this pandemic uh, so that it has the least disruptive effect. Uh, and that's that's what you would have hoped would have occurred. Uh, so I think that, that's, that, that that is a problem. And uh, I think you're right to say that projecting the problem into the future, uh, there is a, a danger that for a lot of people, uh, this experience has been uh, so powerful and so overwhelming that they will adopt rituals and practices, you know, that will kind of move into the future. So just to give you an example today, I went to our, our local shop um, to get some bread um, and some vegetables, a kind of a, a farm shop, and there were six or seven people in the queue. And as I was standing there, this guy comes up to me, who's a friend of my colleague, and he comes over and... Uh, shakes my hand and I shake his hand and then we looked at each other. He says, we shouldn't have done that, you know, but we just did it because it just seemed like the, the right thing to do. 
And we looked around and some of the, you know, some of the other people were smiling, but some of the other people were looking at us in a very, very hostile way. And the point I'm really trying to get at by using this example is that what we have is a kind of very differentiated reaction on the part of the population, which will be very important for understanding what's going to happen in the future. You can see this, for example, that some people love wearing masks because for them wearing a mask is seen as a symbol of uh, virtue. Wearing a uh, mask is a symbol of social responsibility. It's a signal that I am a really, really good person. And in their eyes, people who don't wear a mask are irresponsible. They they put other people's life at risk. They're the wrong kind of people. Um, and then some people don't wear masks because they're making a statement by not wearing masks. And what we're having is a kind of a range of, uh, of unhelpful identities uh, evolving through the pandemic, uh, which all relate back to, you know, what, you know, how do you, uh, how do you perceive risk? How do you perceive danger? How do you perceive safety and security? All these things, uh, I think will become really, really important, both politically, but also, also culturally. Well, of course, there's a tendency in these situations towards lowest common denominator, isn't there? So therefore, if in some instances it would be valuable to wear a mask, then everyone should, because as soon as you introduce an element of doubt or variation, then that opens the door for people to, you know, to flout the rules in the name of that. For example, you were saying, of course, you would expect different behaviours in London, you know, so densely populated, so many activities, uh, essential activities still going on there compared to an isolated farming community. But I guess the idea from uh, legislators and law enforcement is, well, if you allow some people to do one thing and other people to do another, in particular with this situation we're dealing with, because so many people don't like it, they're so disturbed by it and they do want to get back to quote-unquote normal as quickly as possible, that if you even open a tiny little chink in the door to potentially not social distancing or potentially not doing X, Y, or Z, then they will take that chance. So better just have everyone do the same thing, you know, one size fits all. Yeah, and I think that uh, in in addition to that, what you also have is very powerful cultural pressures to conform so that uh, if everybody is wearing a mask on the tube or on the train, then you will be expected to wear a mask. Otherwise, you're seen as somehow a problem or a threat. Um, and I think that there is a kind of uh, dynamic in the air. It's, it's unclear yet how powerful it is. But mm-hmm. I was very, very disturbed when, I think it was last Sunday or Saturday, I read a report that uh, the police have logged about 300,000 uh, sort of reports where people were snitching on each other. You know, basically uh, getting in touch with the police to say, my neighbor is you know, not doing the right thing. Here are some people who are, uh, are, are, are standing too close to each other. So there's a kind of, there's a kind of, uh, um, unhelpful and, and, uh, and what I say is quite destructive reaction where people just want to let lash out at other people who aren't behaving in the way that they're behaving. And, uh, so I think that that is a problem. I, I'm not sure to what extent uh, that will be the dominant reaction you know, moving forward because fortunately there are other kinds of people uh, who are a little bit more relaxed and, 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 and do aspire and do yearn to get their freedom back as soon as possible. So it's, it's, I think what we can say with utmost certainty is that there's going to be a very heterogeneous reaction 
to the to the world in 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 the months ahead, where people's proclivity, personal proclivities, and their subject subjective inclinations will have a an unprecedented importance in the kind of behaviors uh, that they will adopt. Uh, um, and I think that, uh, unfortunately, uh, unlike in the United States, where you can have different states where people behave very, very differently, there's far less scope for that in the United Kingdom because we live in a much smaller and more centralized society. Well, I suppose behaviors going forward uh, relates back to what you were saying about this uh, need for conformity or this drive for conformity because it's a bit like the crabs in a bucket you know, one crab's trying to escape from the bucket and then other crabs are pulling the crab back in because if one crab seems to escape from the bucket, that means other people can do it as well. So, and that's religious as well, religious impulse, you know, at their worst, religions were trying to force themselves on non-believers because the very existence of non-believers kind of indicated that their religion wasn't the be-all and end-all after all. So if you can, if everyone in Sweden isn't dead, then that means that, that the model couldn't be completely broken. Yeah, and I think that uh, there's a parallel with religion, which is the way in which um, safety has become this kind of quasi-sacred value. Uh, and it, it's got its own rituals and its own symbols. And you know, there is a kind of sense in which, you know, sort of we kind of uh, tell each other, and this was the case even before the pandemic, Almost ritualistically, you know, not saying goodbye, but when we when we leave, we say stay safe, as mm. if we live in a dangerous kind of a world. And we talk about safe sex and safe schools. You know, we talk about safe spaces, and you know, gradually, uh, just about every dimension of our life has got to have a a safety uh, a label attached to it, and unless it's a safe you know, sort of environment, and whatever that means, it's always unclear. You know, there's always, uh, uh, you're always scoring the accusation that you're doing something wrong. You know, why aren't you keeping me safe? You know, and I don't know if you notice, but uh, every time any uh, manager or, or company director uh, talks about their product or their or, or their services, they always begin by saying, you know, our first priority is the safety of our customers. You know, and I remember taking my child to school, you know, or, or trying to find a school for my kid. This was back in 1995 when I first noticed it. And my wife and I would go to, you know, different schools to see what was going on. And I remember the headmasters coming to us and saying, oh, don't worry, Professor Grady, because in our school, the safety of your child is our first consideration. I remember my saying, my wife saying to the, the headmaster, we were hoping that the first consideration of this school would be the, to teach my child to read and to write and to you know, do maths and everything. But they feel the need to kind of emphasize this. And after, although there's a strong rhetorical element to this, after a while, it does acquire this uh, inner momentum. And it, it, it becomes almost like a, a kind of uh, orthodoxy that uh, uh, you need to kind of uh, pay lip service to and, and, you, and you need to... Uh, behave in ways that are defined as safe if you're, uh, uh, if you're not going to co- sort of court criticism and questioning. Well, then potentially litigation as well. It occurs to me that this, uh, you know, the drive for safety and uh, risk assessments and health and safety and all that kind of evolved and into law eventually and it became 
you know, part of the statute books so that if you did, if you violated health and safety law, for example, then you could be sued. So it made all the managers and risk assessors, you wanted to make sure they ticked all the boxes, but this has continued to encroach. Now there's a difference between law and policy, of course. So if you want to go into a certain institution, uh, they can say you must abide by our policies, but that's not the same as the law of the land. So if you don't want to wear trainers and if you want to wear trainers into a nightclub and the bouncer says you cannot, it's not our dress code. It's not the law, but they can say you, you can't come into our club unless you dress appropriately. That doesn't mean you have to wear trainers all the time. But I'm thinking now along this line of where um, in institutions where this desire to offend no one and for no one to be harmed, you know, psychologically informs policy which then in people's minds becomes conflated with perhaps not the law of the land but behaviors that were continued elsewhere if you see what i mean so people are even when it's not a matter of law they're very afraid of offending anyone of causing anyone psychological harm of making them feel uncomfortable uh, of any of that uh, even though they're not bound by any laws yeah i mean i think what we have are, are not laws but uh codes of conduct, uh, both formal and informal, which have a very strong expressive character to them. They're about sending a message. Uh, and I think that uh, you'll find that uh, although they're not laws, they are increasingly being underwritten by pr- new pr- processes uh, and procedures, uh, which have the effect of both micromanaging life within institutions, but also of, um, of managing behavior, of, of regulating and ultimately controlling behavior. I think that the impact of this is is quite uh, quite considerable. Uh, and uh, it was really brought home to me in, in the most latest version of this today when the government is trying to nudge people to go back to work. And the head of the TUC, the, the, the Trade Union Congress, is saying that, no, 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 we don't want people to go back to work because we can't really guarantee their safety. So it's almost like, the trade union movement has become a, a safety union movement, you know, it, you know where, where, where it's kind of uh, health and safety obsessed to the point at which that that becomes more important than people gaining their livelihood. Um, and I think that that kind of attitude is now pretty much the, the norm in, in every major institution in, in our society and uh, is something that... Um, has an expansive character to it for the very simple reason that health and safety or protecting people from offense uh, are, are never going to, to work for the very simple reason that if people want to feel offended, they will feel offended by just about anything. So whatever the rules are, once people begin to think in a way that uh, convinces them that they are at risk, that they are facing some kind of potential danger, then it becomes a self prophecy. Yeah, and it's very difficult to rule these things back, isn't it? Just as we're concerned about potential new draconian legislation perhaps being passed in the midst of this current crisis and in the wake of it. So there are these attitudes that can become uh, solidified in the national or in the the psyche of the species. And uh, uh, yeah, very few laws are ever taken off the statute book. It's interesting, we're used to governments putting economies ahead of people. Uh, This is quite a common complaint that, you know, people's lives and welfare are sacrificed and people are thrown out of jobs and 
their health is compromised, all sorts of things because it's for the economy. Or corporations will do this as well. They will put finances ahead of people. And in the current situation, then we're being asked to see that um, no matter what the economic fallout and destruction, this is governments putting people before economy. And that's supposed to be uh, an unalloyed good. Yeah, and I think the this trade-off between people's lives and, and, and the economy is, is a fundamentally flawed counterposition for the very simple reason that uh, the economy isn't just simply a set of statistics or a set of textbooks. The economy is about people's working lives you know, and our lives as human beings is just as much bound up with the work we do as the food that we eat. And the idea that somehow there's a kind of contradiction here, you know, overlooks the fact that uh, at the end of the day, the, the, you know, our, our, our health and, and our work are irreducibly are, are bound together. They're meshed together. They're not something that are, that kind of you know, one counterposes. And I think the very fact that there is this kind of, you know, people versus the economy, um, has got to do with this, uh, uh, sort of, uh, grotesque, critique of capitalism that's what it's kind of driving it you know that somehow there is something fundamentally wrong with making uh, that we have to work you know when we don't want to work and it you know and one of the demands that's being put forward by critics of the government is that uh, if people don't want to go back to work they shouldn't be made to go back to work i mean that's going to be a very big issue in the months ahead because if you know because the argument they're putting forward if, if they feel unsafe then they should not have to uh, deal with uh, the, 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 the world of work. So what, it, what this will do is it will uh, create a, a far more uh, expansive idea of, of, of health and safety in, in, in the place of work, far greater than ever before, to the point at which it, it, it kind of invites a kind of paralysis in, in, in terms of our working lives. And I would say that this is not something that we need to just accommodate to. I, I don't accept that uh, things are inevitably going to go in one direction, that, that we have to put up with the loss of uh, freedom, the loss of human aspiration and experimentation. Uh, there are, you know, we can argue, we can debate with people, we can set examples of alternative ways of doing things. So I would, you know, I, I mean, I hope that conversations like you and I are having at the moment are you know, are taking place elsewhere as well can begin to encourage people to discover their active side and, and their capacity to make things happen rather than just simply you know sit at home and watch daytime TV you know while the pandemic goes on. Well, they're already talking about people not going back to work and some people not wanting to, being afraid to. Of course, the the concept, the the universal basic income uh, concept, has been revived again. Um, at this time as a way of potentially providing for people, initially those who may have lost their jobs uh, in the medium uh, term, maybe long-term future, maybe we'll never get them back again. What do you do with all these suddenly unemployed people? I mean, signing them all up onto the benefit system presents a problem. But down that route, then you're going to basically, whether you think there's any, or whether anyone listening to this thinks there's any merit in a, in a universal basic income or not, the point is in this context, it would kind of institutionalize this idea, you know, paying people to stay at home because we've been told at the minute that staying home is the heroic thing to do. 
uh, stay at home, play computer games, watch Netflix, don't go out, don't interact, save the NHS, save the country, save lives. If we something as fundamental as paying people to not work going forward, never mind what work needs to be done and doesn't need to be done and what's essential and inessential, will be an enormous fundamental change to go through, particularly as you say that although we're sometimes encouraged not to identify with our jobs or whatever, but people do derive so much meaning from what they do. And we can see people struggling with that now, people sitting at home who want to be at work because they, they take so much of their life's meaning from what they do. No, I, I, I agree with you. I think that uh, work is uh, an essential uh, element of our identity, our individual identity. Uh, it is through work that we learn to express ourselves. And ultimately, it is through our work that we discover who we are. And it doesn't matter what work you do, whether it's it, it, it's taken, uh, it's got a high status or not. It does have all of these attributes to it. So I think that uh, you know, we should do whatever we can to encourage people uh, to get back to work. And if, if there are, if there is going to be a massive problem of unemployment, which is a possibility, you know, we got to think about how we use that uh, potential that the unemployed have for positive uh, purposes and in particular so that people's uh, people understand that their 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 life and and the resources that that they get have you know come with responsibilities in some shape or form obviously there are people who are ill and sick and everything else who don't fall into that category but most of us are really kind of healthy individuals that can that can find ways and means of, of, of making a useful contribution to their lives and to society. So I'm, I, you know, I do believe that we got to hold the line on, on work in order to basically ensure that, that people are able to get on with their lives. And because uh, we know that people who don't work, you know, usually end up, you know, depressed. They usually end up, uh, Turning in on themselves and 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 end up in a in a in a, in a worse place than if they had a had a job. So I think that the the work element is really quite important, and it's going to be one of the first important debates that we're going to have in the post COVID era. Well, beyond the the psychological fallout for individuals and societies and and how we all act and interact with each other going forward, you know, in the potential negatives uh, left over from this. Uh, one concern I have is that it will be a temptation or at least a possibility for lockdowns or other sorts of draconian measures to be reenacted again and again. You know, the whole we've set a precedent now in the same way that you and I are still living with airport security that was brought in, some of it ineffective, which was brought in in the wake of 9-11. Ten years from now, 20 years from now. I'd rather not be living with some of the things that we're dealing with now. I mean, time will tell. Yeah, I mean, there is that uh, threat. Usually, whenever uh, freedoms are lost, they're never given back voluntarily. That's the uh, lesson of history. Uh, my main concern is is really uh, with the indifference of a large section of society towards the loss of freedom and the unquestioning way in which people reacted to... Uh, being told that there's a lockdown or the unquestioned way in which people uh, have accepted some of the post 9-11 emergency measures. And I think that uh, it seems to me that 
the the real problem is is that we've not take we're not taking freedom sufficiently uh, as a as a as an important value. I think the valuation of freedom has suffered in the last two or three decades. You can see that most clearly in the universities, where uh, the freedom of speech is not uh, not celebrated anymore. Where where in fact intellectuals spend devote more energy towards criticizing free speech than in in supporting it. So you do have a culture at the moment where uh, we rhetorically affirm freedom, but we don't live the free- freedom in a kind of in a nice uh, and clear democratic kind of a way. So uh, there is a very real concern, and, and we just got to make sure that uh, everybody understands that a lockdown is an exceptional measure you take in emergency. It's something that you don't want to repeat uh, in the future, and even if there are pandemics in 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 the years to come. You know, we are going to have to look, want to look for other ways of, of containing that pandemic than to move into a self-imposed uh, quarantine. Uh, and I think that that question is, is crucially important because freedom is something that we need to flourish as a as a human species. And freedom is something uh, that is the most creative dynamic within our societies that we that allows us to flourish and to thrive. And uh, therefore, anything that uh, compromises that needs to be fought. Well, for listeners who'd like to find out more about some of the ideas we've been discussing, they should get your book, How Fear Works, Culture of Fear in the 21st Century. You've also got a new book coming out soon, which is relevant here as well. That's entitled Why Borders Matter, Why Humanity Must Relearn the Art of Drawing Boundaries. Uh, Before we sign off, if you'd just like to share details of your website and anything else you'd like to put out there. Well, uh, I can always be contacted in my, on my website, which is www.frankfreddy.com. I'm always publishing uh, uh, newspaper articles, but mainly more, uh, uh, my more important articles are always available on, on, on Spike online, uh, which is increasingly widely read, which, which where other people write along similar themes uh, that are to do with freedom. And, and the kind of cultural struggles that we're faced with. Now, I would suggest that uh, all of you listeners, you know, get involved in, in the critical job of questioning uh, what's going on at the moment and putting yourself out and, and demonstrating that we are not kind of passive uh, sort of individuals who have to be told how to behave, but we, 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 can, we can take ourselves sufficiently seriously to make a difference. Splendid. Well, once again, Frank, thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thanks very much. Take care.